Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv, and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. I hope everyone listening is doing well and keeping healthy. The new Israeli government has arguably had its toughest few days since it took power four months ago, uh, mostly related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Late last week, Israel designated six Palestinian civil society NGOs as terror organizations. There's a looming crisis brewing between Washington and Jerusalem over the possible reopening of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. And Nunes settlement construction in the West Bank and East Jerusalem is in the offing. To help us take stock of the current state of play in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we have a very special guest this week, Avi Sakharov, a leading Israeli journalist on Arab and Palestinian affairs, a frequent writer for the Times of Israel and Walla and Ma'ariv. But most of you, I'm sure, will know him from the hit TV show Fauda, which he co-created along with actor Leo Raz and their new show, also on Netflix, Hit and Run. Hi, Avi. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Eric. Uh, so first off, Avi, before we get into the, the meat, the tachlis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and what's happening today on the ground, um, the intro obviously makes clear that you're, you've become known as the guy who created Fauda, right? Uh, it comes in your bios. It's almost the first or second sentence that comes up. Uh, for you personally, do you sometimes just want to yell and say, hey, uh, I was a real person? Before I created this hit TV show, I was a leading journalist, a commentator, very well known, uh, written books about the Second Intifada and the Second Lebanon War. Uh, does it bother you or does it, does it honor you? It used to bother me. You know, honestly, it was kind of weird that the first few years after Fauda was aired that people didn't recognize me as the analyst, as the journalist, and blah, blah, blah. But suddenly, oh, you're the guy who created Fada. You're the guy who created Fada. Yeah, but hey, guys, I've been here for the last 15, 16 years covering the Middle East. It was, and that was six years ago. So now it's like 20 years of uh, something. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, you know, you accept it. You learn how to hug it, to embrace it, and say, okay, enjoy the moment. So maybe they, they will not remember you as the, the greatest analyst for Middle East issues in Israel, but at the end, they will remember you as someone who co-created a show that did some kind of an effect here in Israel, but also outside of Israel. Regarding the Middle East, regarding the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and it seems like, yeah, Fauda made some kind of a success, but a very unique one. Uh, I think that many people remember that show not just a kind of an ordinary show. Mm-hmm. It remained very, very different, special, unique. Uh, thank God you know, it worked. Uh, I agree. Uh, it's almost become shorthand, right? Something like Orwell, Orwellian, Kafka, Kafka S. So anytime something happens in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, you have people say, oh, that's that's like an episode of Fauda. And we had it last month with the jailbreak up in northern Israel, uh, six Palestinian uh, prisoners escaped using a spoon and digging a tunnel, and the first thing anybody thought was this would be this would be a great season of Fauda. Um, yeah. But going back a little bit... So it's not, by the way. It's not. Uh, you know, we're about to start shooting the fourth season. Okay. Three weeks exactly from today. And 
Uh, there's nothing about the jailbreak. I think that you know the thing that we saw in reality, meaning the the escape of those six uh, prison prisoners from Gilboa prison. I tweeted back at that time that for me that this scenario of you know Zakaria's Bedi running away from a prison two kilometers or 1.5 mile away from home, it's too fictionalized. <laughs> it, it cannot be real. So, yeah. Right. Real life, stranger than fiction, stranger than anything uh, you can come up with for, for a Hollywood show. Exactly. Uh, going back a little bit, you probably don't remember this, but back in early 2014, we were having uh, breakfast near your home in, in Ramat Shavon, and you started telling me about this show that you're making about, uh, you know, undercover Israeli special forces, the Mistar Avim, Palestinian terrorists, the Palestinian security forces, the West Bank. And you told me back then it, it's going to be called Fauda, and you're going to love it. Uh, and I said, wow, this is really, really right up my alley. But it wasn't clear back then, I don't think, that so many people in Israel and, like you said, you know, in, in the Middle East and internationally would love this show just as much. Uh, and you also mentioned something interesting that you and Leo had pitched it to a number of places here in Israel, a number of production companies and TV stations, and you were, you were getting passed that people here didn't quite see the, the appeal of a show about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So looking back at 2014, what do you think it, it was about the show that, that actually made it happen and made it so, so compelling for so many people? Um, it's, it was and still is the, the million dollar question. You know, but I don't have a clear answer for that. I mean, I would understand the, the ones that said... No, the past. Because honestly, as someone like you that is writing about Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know better than anyone else that you know in Israel it's not such a, an attractive issue to write about. It's a matter that you know not too many Israelis care for. It's an issue that doesn't really exist in the election campaigns, I and mean, we had a, a few of them in the, the last few years. Um, but no one really cares. No one really wants to hear about the Palestinians nor about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So when we came in 2011, 12, 13, trying to pitch it to different networks in Israel, they, they all said no, except for one, yes, that is the satellite company that, you know, bottom line said yes. But till yes, we got so many no's. And we could understand why we got a negative answer. And it's not only because we didn't have enough experience. I mean, we were pretty green in this area. I mean, we didn't write TV shows before. Mm -hmm. I was a journalist, as you mentioned. Leo Oz was an actor and a producer, but the commercial producer. And no one really wanted, you know, to invest millions of dollars in the hands of two punks from Jerusalem. I mean, we were born in Jerusalem. And... At the end, you know, yes, were the ones that, for some reason, I still do not really understand why they believed in us and they said, go ahead and do it. Even for them, it wasn't that easy. I mean, it took them a while and they wanted to see six episodes. And after, like, they had all kinds of uh, gradual points in order to 
see if we're ready, if we were delivering. Mm -hmm. And at the end, we delivered. And I don't know, there was something about it, there was something very authentic, special. I think that, you know, one of the secrets of the show is that it didn't try to be a Hollywood show. It didn't try to go by the, the laws of writing a script. It just tried to be authentic. Sometimes it worked, of course, sometimes it didn't. But at the end, I think that you feel it. You, like almost you can feel and smell the, the places that you, that you see in, in Fauda. And just a reminder, usually you cannot smell anything on TV. <laughs> That's right. You can uh, you can smell the cigarette smoke in the office of the Palestinian Authority security chief with the yeah. trays yeah. and the paintings and the pictures on the wall. Uh, it, as somebody who has seen it, it it's really authentic, uh, and I think that's that's part of the major appeal. Uh, and I think the proof is in the pudding that uh, that it has become an international success and compelling to people, not just here and not just people in the in the business. Uh, like you and me. So you and Lior uh, just put out about a month or two ago a new show on Netflix called Hit and Run. Uh, it's a spy and action thriller, but to my mind, and I binged through it uh, a few weeks ago, uh, to my mind, the beating heart of this show is really Americans and Israelis, uh, unlike Israelis and Palestinians in Fauda. Uh, it's about, you know, American expats coming to Tel Aviv and falling in love and Israelis uh, moving or relocating to, to New York. The, the romance, the misunderstandings, the pitfalls uh, of this kind of cracked mirror relationship. Uh, and to me, it's, it was very familiar, like Fauda, but for different reasons. It was Hidden Run is familiar to me uh, for someone who has a foot in, in both countries, right, in the U.S. and Israel. So... For, for Hit and Run, my question is, what, what came first? Was it the specifically American-Israeli angle or the action spy thriller angle, or, or was it both? Hit and Run is a show about trust. Hmm. And what we want to show is two levels of trust, meaning between a man and his wife, between a husband and a wife. And especially with the very, very special reality that we have here in Israel, which we have many immigrants, many that an Israeli guy can easily marry someone from France, the US, Australia, Europe, Middle East, etc. And what happens if, you know, that takes us to another level, of course, but what happens if this wife or this husband, you do not, you do not know everything about them, mm. okay? How much can you trust a man that you just met a few years ago or a woman that you met a few years ago? And you know some stuff about her or his experiences and about their history, but you do not know it all. Is it possible that they're hiding something? And then it took us to the other level of two countries, two nations, very friendly ones, like a husband and a wife, right. you might say. But those nations, though they're very close and they cooperate and they collaborate, at the end of the day, there's different interests there. And what happens when one of them is trying to hide something from the other? What happens when one of them is trying to secretly undermine the interests of the other? So it took us to this, this kind of an adventure. And I think that, you know, the story is it's, it's intriguing. Uh, it's full of like secrets and 
slowly, slowly, gradually you understand the bigger picture. At the beginning, while you're with the, the hero of the movie, or the hero of the TV show, second, you do not understand what the hell happened. How come that his wife was killed, and I'm not doing a spoiler here because it's just at the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. how come that his wife is killed in a hit and run accident? Interesting. So it's, uh, it's the relationship that came first and extrapolating, uh, say, a marriage to the U.S.-Israel relationship. And as we've known in the past and perhaps know right now and, and going forward, uh, it's not often smooth sailing that as close as two people or two countries can be, like you said, uh, there are tensions, there are differences. Exactly. Very interesting. Uh, so that's a good transition uh, for a conversation about the current state of play. Uh, so you're not just a, a screenwriter and showrunner and TV show creator. Uh, like we said, uh, you were and are a leading uh, journalist and commentator on, on Israeli-Palestinian affairs and the Arab world. Um, so I'm really curious because there's been a lot of talk uh, since the new government led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, took office in the summer, uh, this whole paradigm that we've heard of, shrinking the conflict. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about that. Bennett mentions it himself. Benny Gantz mentions it himself. This is this is the new strategy. So on the one hand, we have uh, a new government ostensibly taking a new approach, right? Shrinking the conflict, lowering friction, uh, trying to strengthen the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Very different than uh, what Netanyahu uh, did uh, during the course of his 12 years in power, and we can get into what that looked like. Uh, and on the other hand, as I mentioned at the, at the top, uh, there, there are still very ideological right-wing elements in this new government. First and foremost, the prime minister. Uh, there are plans for new settlement construction. We had the designation of the six Palestinian uh, NGOs late last week, uh, claims that they were front groups and helped finance uh, the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a uh, terrorist organization. Uh, there are plans to reopen the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem to better uh, liaise and coordinate with the Palestinians themselves. Um, so from your point of view, Avi, uh, is the new government actually a breath of fresh air when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or is it just more of the same but wrapped in a maybe nicer package? I would go for option B. Okay. Meaning that there's no real policy regarding the Palestinian uh, issue. I don't think that I noticed any kind of a strategy except for, again, you know, surviving. That was the strategy of the former government headed by Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think that that's the main object, objective of this new government. Um, surviving. Simple as that. Meaning that all the time that you can delay, push to the side, and not discuss the most burning issue that is there, like the, the, the elephant in the room, which are the Palestinians, so do it. And this is what this government is doing. By the way, just like the former government. The former government didn't want to have any kind of peace negotiations with the Palestinians, nor a war. So it just stalled time. Mm-hmm. This is what they did in the West Bank, and especially in Gaza, where they tried to bribe in so many words to give money to Hamas's government in order to keep them quiet. 
So this government is like less about the bribe, but still it's the same old policy, you know, holding things in Gaza and acting as if Hamas is a kind of a partner to keep things quiet in Gaza, and at the same time not doing anything that will strengthen the Palestinian authority, hmm. God forbid. Because that allows this government not to negotiate over peace, to keep the government alive and kicking, and one government that will be able to face Netanyahu. So everyone agrees that we should delay the discussion over the Palestinian issue. Why? Because any kind of an attempt by each and every opponent of, of, the, of this coalition will explode the political situation and will bring down this government. So this is why the joint interest of Meretz, Yamina, uh, Labour Party, Yeshatid, all of them together is just not to talk about the Palestinians. Let me press you a little bit on that. Because we have seen, let's say, Benny Gantz go and meet with uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. Uh, they've issued uh, more work permits. They're planning on allowing them uh, to build uh, construction or receive permits uh, to build in Israeli-controlled areas of the West Bank. Uh, they floated the Palestinian Authority a $150 million loan and on and on, you know, as part of this paradigm, as they call it, of, of shrinking the conflict. To your mind, is that just is that just not enough? Is it kind of window dressing over over core uh, core problems on the ground? Is that how you see it? This is a part of keeping the status quo. Mm. This is a part of you know um, improving the economic situation on the ground, and on the other hand, not going to any kind of uh, political diplomatic concessions or measures that will be dramatic and might um, affect the political situation. Meaning all the time that we can give them, you know, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 10,000 working permits, mm -hmm. that's fine, that's great, but not more than that. The same with Gaza. You know, the number of Palestinian workers that are getting out of Gaza to work every day in Israel, it's 10,000 people. Right. I mean, we haven't seen that for ages maybe not for ages, but we haven't seen that for decades. And that's a big wow. But when you understand that the policy here is about keeping things quiet and not more than that, so you understand that the larger picture didn't change. It's just the details. So re rearranging uh, the deck chairs on on a Titanic, so to speak. That it really won't change, no, no, it really won't change the, the core dynamics of the conflict. Yeah, and listen, honestly, like none of us really know knows what will happen in the, the next few years. None of us really knows if you know there's going to be a third uprising or not. How will the Palestinians act, do the day after the old man goes? And the old man I referred to, of course, Mahmoud Abbas, the president, Abu Mazen, right. who's 86 in less than three weeks. Right. If less than three weeks, he's going to be 86. So this is the man that leads the Palestinian side in the West Bank, at least. And we really, I mean, I, at least I, really don't know what will happen the day after he's gone. Not only about who's going to be the successor, of course, that's a huge question. 
But even if we would know that let's assume, you know, Mahmoud Al-Alul or Jibril Jew are going to be the successors, mm -hmm. what kind of an effect will they have on the ground? What will be their policy? Are they going to embrace the, the policy of Mahmoud Abbas of not doing anything? Maybe, but maybe not. And I'm sure that we do not really know how will the public react to the appointing of this president or the other. Right. I don't see general elections coming, honestly, in Gaza and the West Bank the day after or the three months after the, the president is gone, two months. And then what? Who's going to appoint the new president to come? Is it going to be Fatah Central Committee? And who's going to respect Fatah Central Committee? Well, we know that it's a group of all corrupt men, men, not women. Right. Maybe there's one or two, but not more than that. But no one really support, no one really cares for. We'll, uh, we'll unpack that those issues in a second. Uh, but I wanted to take a, a moment to go and take a question from one of our listeners as part of the Ask the Forum segment where you can send in uh, questions via email at policypod at ipforum.org and we uh, will address them in future episodes of the Israel Policy Pod. Uh, but this week's question comes from Jeremy Biskind uh, and he's asking, what are the odds that the issue of the East Jerusalem Consulate is raised again after the new budget passes. So this is in reference to the Biden administration's stated intention to reopen the U.S. consulate uh, in Jerusalem, which was shuttered uh, about three years ago by the Trump administration. Uh, it's become a really contentious political issue domestically in Israel. Uh, the Bennett government has made clear that it uh, does not want to give the U.S. permission to reopen uh, this consulate. Uh, the Biden administration, as far as we know, is still intent on opening this consulate. So, Avi, what do you think about this entire issue of the East Jeru of the Jerusalem consulate? Rather, it's not in East Jerusalem per se, uh, but it's a consulate meant to liaise with the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority. Um, what do you think will happen after the budget passes in a few weeks? If the budget passes in a few weeks. So, if the budget passes in a few weeks, I assume that yes, the U.S. will try to will go for opening the consulate in East Jerusalem which existed for decades, just as a reminder. It's not a new thing. Right. It was there. It's still there physically. And by the way, since it is open, since it's working, till the day that it was closed by the Trump administration, I don't remember that it really undermined Jerusalem or the state of Israel's security. Right. I don't remember that we couldn't resist, like we couldn't breathe, we couldn't eat, we couldn't drink because of the existence of this consulate in East Jerusalem. So let's keep in mind that this is a very, very symbolic issue that is meant to do nothing. Closing down the consulate, reopen it, it's not going to change anything except for, you know, creating some kind of a noise, a media noise over nothing. Just like with the Golan Heights, that you know, suddenly we had the, the American president Trump recognizing the Golan Heights as part of the state of Israel, opening up some kind of a, I don't know, a joke city that is called <laughs> Trump. Like, who, what, why do we need it? 
What was it all about it? Like that, that's it. Now the whole world supports Jerusalem as the internal capital, the united internal capital of the state of Israel. So this is just like, you know, mumbling, jumbling with no real target, with nothing. Biden administration wants to show that it's very different from Trump administration. So he wants to reopen the same council that was closed by Trump administration. So what? Mm. Why does it need to create some kind of, I don't know, an earthquake here in Israel? No one, like, I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's not about, you know, saying Jews are not allowed to go and pray in the Western world. It's not that someone is saying, okay, we're going to stop all visits of Jews in the Temple Mount. It's not something sacred. It's not something religious. It's not something going to open up the council in East Jerusalem and treat people, Palestinians, from East Jerusalem. So what? Mm-hmm. And this is why I don't understand, you know, the drama that is being created, especially in the right-wing media and that uh, journalists that support Netanyahu and his friends, just in order to show how Israel is now weak. What's so weak about well, as as we know uh, from the past, uh, Netanyahu is very good at uh, taking these minor, perhaps symbolic issues and raising it to existential dimensions. Uh, you know, he's saying that the reopening of the of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem would uh, would divide Jerusalem again. Uh, like you said, that's uh, that's not the case. It's simply changing a sign on a building that's been owned and used by the Americans for over 100 years in Jerusalem, uh, basically changing the sign back to uh, consulate as opposed to embassy. Um, Sadly, Jerusalem is divided with the consulate, without the consulate, with U.S. recognition of Jerusalem as the capital, without the, the recognition, it's divided. You can see it every day in the last few weeks in Damascus Gate, mm-hmm. Shem. You can see it in other places in the old city, you can see that in many of the East Jerusalemite neighborhoods, Jews, Israelis, do not go to. Why? Because they don't have anything to do over there. So with all the respect, and there's not much respect to the slogans that Netanyahu is spreading around, so things on the ground didn't change a bit since the closing of the consulate and since the embassy was moved to Jerusalem. Nothing changed to the positive, the opposite. Right. The tension became only bigger, and the situation between Palestinians and Israelis or Jews in Jerusalem only became worse. Right, and we saw that in May, in April and May, leading up to to the Gaza War, where exactly. the, the trigger started in Damascus Gate and in East Jerusalem, and and spread outwards and arguably to Gaza and inside Israel itself. So. We, you touched on it briefly earlier, uh, the West Bank and the state of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, it's, it's the endless question, right? Looking at uh, Mahmoud Abbas, as you said, uh, well into his 80s. He's in year, I think, what, 16 of what was supposed to be a five-year presidential term. Uh, I remember writing articles years ago about the, the looming Palestinian succession crisis, who would take over after after Abbas exits the stage, uh, and yet he's still there. He's still there, uh, for good or bad. You can you can argue that point. But from your point of view, and as somebody who who both knows 
the actual individuals and has met them and interviewed them. And also uh, spent, obviously, a lot of time uh, in the West Bank, all across the West Bank. Uh, how do you think the the succession process, right, the end, the twilight of Abbas's reign will actually be handled? Um, you know, he came into office as as the anti-Yasser Arafat. Uh, he was viewed primarily by, by the U.S. and the West as a, as a reformer. Uh, initially when he took over as prime minister and then when he became president after Arafat died in 2004. And uh, in recent years, obviously, he's turned into very much like Arafat, uh, more of an authoritarian. Uh, the Palestinian Authority, political space in the Palestinian Authority has has shrunk under Abbas. Uh, he's being referred to now as the old man, which was how people used to refer to Arafat back in the day, yeah. right? So coming coming around full circle to that. So from, from your point of view, as somebody who has really covered these people for, for decades, um, what's your assessment of, of Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas? I think that you just gave the, the perfect assessment of Mahmoud Abbas. Um, listen, I still remember the days that you know, 2006, five, he was elected general in 2005, 16 years ago. Since then, there, there were no elections for presidency. Right. No one believed in him. He was considered as a very weak character, you know, the, our former late prime minister, Ariel Sharon, called him um, a foie. What's the word in English? Please remind me. In foie, inflated? No, 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 a froach, like a chicken, a uh, baby chicken. <laughs> like a baby chicken? Like, uh, okay, we'll get, we'll get our research yeah. team on this. The baby of the, of the, how we call it. A young chick. Yeah. Um, so, our former, our former late prime minister, uh, Ariel Sharon, used to refer to Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, as a young chick. You know, a young chicken. Uh, that's the way he called him, a fuach in Hebrew. Meaning that, you know, he's too young, he's too weak, he cannot deliver, blah, 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 blah. Then two years later, and I, I was there on the ground and I witnessed it, and I, that was a miracle for me. Because he managed to eliminate the existence of hundreds of armed people on the streets of the West Bank. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you would go, back at that time of, you know, 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, till 2007, actually, there were hundreds of militants with guns wandering all over, behaving as if they were the local sheriffs in the refugee camps, in the towns, in the villages, etc. And he managed to wipe this thing out, like to, to eliminate this phenomenon. It was called Fauda. <laughs> That's the way that people describe it. Fauda, meaning chaos, right. because there was no Palestinian authority. And he brought the so sovereignty of the Palestinian authority back into, on the ground. There's police people, there's security people, and they kept law and order to some level, of course. So that, let's keep in mind that he made a huge miracle here for the state of Israel and for the Palestinians. And then, slowly, slowly, just like in any other dictatorship, 
the power corrupted him. Mm. Meaning 16 years as a president, when you have full control over the security forces, when you have full control over the media, so then you can start and no see parliament. the seeds. Yeah, no parliament, nothing. So then you see how he undermined himself in a way. And he undermined the, the elements or the seeds of any potential democracy that might evolve in the Palestinian territories. And it, it became worse and worse. And now it looks bad. Now it looks bad because he's back again looking like a, a chickpea or a young chick that's not really capable of changing the situation on the ground. I mean, yes, he is the president. Yes, he's still in control of the Palestinian security forces. But honestly, he's not in control over places like Mukhayim Jenin, the refugee camp of Jenin, Balata, Aska, I doubt if he has a control over well, Amari, mainly the, the refugee camps and some of the village areas too. Right. I'm not sure that he's in control over the village areas of Jenin and Nablus. And you see that, you know, his people, the public, hates him. They want to see him go. And it's very sad that this is what happened to this very nice man. Yes, I do describe him as a very nice man. He was, and I, I believe that he still is. And I remember lots of meetings with him. Four eyes, not four eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had a vision. But when he saw that, you know, his political rivals are starting to rise, so then instead of, you know, working with them, trying to talk to them, he just went against them, um, departing some of them, like Mahmoud Akhlan, Muhammad Akhlan. Right. He departed Muhammad Akhlan. Um, and it's not that Akhlan is, you know, an, an, a truly good man that is only looking for the good of his uh, people. That was also corrupt. But the bottom line was that he, he lasted in a way. He lasted. Uh, we should also remember he's been ruling the Palestinian Authority for much longer than Arafat ruled the Palestinian Authority. So in many respects, uh, what you have now is really the the embodiment of of Abbas and less uh, what it was like under under Arafat for for many years. Yeah, Arafat was there for ten years. Abbas is now his sixteenth year. Sixteen years, and yeah. to my mind, the worst the worst part of this is that uh, you know the Palestinian national movement and definitely the Palestinian Authority have had only two real leaders uh, in its modern history. Uh, and Abbas, you know, like I said, who came in ostensibly as a reformer, uh, gradually amassed power, like you said, eliminated rivals. So what will the next person actually look like? Uh, will the next person be more like Abbas and Arafat? Um, probably. Probably. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. By the way, Avi, uh, in your current role uh, as both you still write, you're a commentator and a journalist, uh, but you're also obviously heavily involved in uh, in TV shows for Netflix. Do you still make it to the West Bank often? Do you go in and see your people over there? No, not too often. I talk to them on the phone from time to time, but you know, my schedule is now all over the place <laughs> about TV shows and movies. And there are some new projects that are coming. Uh, some of them are dealing with the Middle East. Some of them are not. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it became like a full-time job for me. Yeah, it, it, it looks like a full-time job. 
so maybe uh, the orientation more towards Los Angeles and less towards uh, Balata. <laughs> Sadly, yes, I still feel that you know I'm more at home in Balata or El Amari than in Hollywood. Right. 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 Uh, you can take the uh, the Palestinian affairs journalist uh, out of out of the Middle East and out of the West Bank, but you can't really remove it from from himself. Exactly. Um, let's shift quickly to, to Gaza, which we touched on briefly. Uh, we had this major escalation in, in May, uh, 11-day war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, and there was a lot of tough talk both by Netanyahu and then the new government that uh, what was before will not be going forward. Uh, in other words, our policy vis-a-vis Gaza and Hamas uh, will change dramatically, and, and Israel wanted a number of things from from Hamas, uh, stopping their military rearmament, uh, releasing the the Israeli civilians held hostage, and the bodies of two um, killed Israeli soldiers being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. Uh, but to my mind, it almost looks like Israeli policy with regard to Gaza has has come full circle, right? That despite all the tough talk, now we've seen uh, additional uh, easing measures vis-a-vis Gaza. Like you said, uh, increased work permits for Gazans to come into Israel. Uh, Israel is allowing a lot more uh, imports, including cement and metal, into into Gaza. They're allowing the Qatari monthly monthly stipends coming from Qatar for Gaza to uh, to start again. So, am I wrong in thinking that basically Israeli policy? has come full circle and that, again, it's basically we're going to bribe, for lack of a better word, Hamas, in order to to keep them quiet. You're not wrong at all. The bribe still goes on. The only bribe that doesn't go on is the, the cash money, which is to, to transfer into Gaza, and Hamas gives it for their own benefits in different ways. So this is the only thing that Israel changed and is not allowing. But other than that, everything just like it was, was the same old story. Mm-hmm. But again, no one has a magic solution to Gaza, and no one wants to go in a war because we understand that the price that Israel will pay, that Hamas will pay, that everyone will pay for this kind of a war, it's going to be ter- terrible. It's going to be devastating if we're going to go for a war in order to bring down Hamas government or Hamas um, control over Gaza. It's going to end up ugly. And this is why everyone are trying to stall time. That's it. That's the whole policy. Right. This new government, no different than, than Bibi and his policy vis-a-vis Hamas, indirect negotiations, really, with Hamas via the Egyptians and the UN, with Qatari money. So all of that has stayed the same. Um, I'm curious, it seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like a lot of the the experts on the Israeli side, primarily journalists and analysts dealing with Palestinian politics and society on a day-to-day basis, uh, were very skeptical of this policy uh, after May, in other words, that this was tried under under Netanyahu and uh, Hamas for its own, I think, political reasons, escalated in May. They fired rockets at Jerusalem and uh, basically uh, broke the understandings that they had reached 
with the Israeli government under Netanyahu. Uh, and so it seemed to me that that a lot of the experts on the Israeli side said, look, you can't continue doing this because uh, in a few months or a year, you're just going to have another round. Um, so are you, do you feel the same way? Are you uh, as skeptical slash cynical about this policy actually succeeding and, and avoiding a war? Uh, sadly, I think that you know another round is about to come, is about to take place. I don't know when. Right now, the situation is pretty calm, relatively, of course, but it can be changed easily, like an, an hour or a day or a two. And you know, we were just dealing with this uh, hunger strike of the Islamic Jihad prisoners, and we were sure that it's about to bring another escalation. In Gaza, but thank God the hunger strike ended. But at the end, there will be some kind of, I don't know, one prisoner or something that will happen on the border. But still another escalation to come. The fact is that, you know, I think that part of the problem is not only about the Israel side. And, you know, I'm, as Israelis, we tend to criticize and criticize and criticize the Israeli side and the Israeli government and blah, blah, blah. But look, and, and this is one of the things that really I, I cannot understand. Hamas started a war against Israel on May. Hamas shot five or six rockets on Israel's capital because of some issues around Sheikh Jarrah real estate. Are those buildings belonging to Palestinian citizens or Israeli citizens? It was a real estate argument. But for some reason, there was a reason. Hamas chose to start a war versus Israel in order to take over the Palestinian agenda, in order to, to show the Palestinian people, not the world, not the Israelis, but to show the Palestinian people that they are the ones that are in control over the Palestinian agenda. That was the whole aim of this political, of this story. political game, some, as opposed yeah. to economic game. Yeah. Political complete political internal gain. That was it. And for some reason, many people in the world, politicians, celebrities, um, Congress members, etc., they bought this lie that Israel is the aggressor here, that Israel was the one who wanted that. Guys, this doesn't exist. I didn't like Netanyahu's government. I think that they made crucial mistakes about the Palestinian issue, but the last war was initiated by Hamas, continued by Hamas, and Hamas wanted this war. That was it, simple as that. And criticizing Israel for bombing Gaza, hey, this is not the address. The address is Hamas for shooting rockets from inside populated areas. They are the ones to go and say this is wrong. Right, I... Uh... I couldn't agree more. Uh, I wrote the same uh, during and after the war. Oh, I was just reading now your column, so <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But uh, but yeah, I, I think I think uh, the real value, uh, definitely, of your work and what I've tried to do in my work is actually explain uh, Palestinian politics and and the internal dynamics on the Palestinian side to an external and foreign audience. And it's hugely undercovered and underexposed, and and that's regrettable because a lot of uh, the things we see happen and potential escalations in the future 
you know, whether Israel is related or not, uh, a lot of it is uh, due to internal Palestinian political dynamics. Um, and it's, uh, it's severely underexposed. I would say that 90% out of the decisions that are being made by the PA, by the Palestinian Authority, or by Hamas are because of internal political issues, not because of anything else. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, ideally, those stories and those issues would get uh, more coverage. More coverage. Um, Avi, before we wrap up, we have a, a segment on the policy pod called Curation Corner, where every week we highlight our favorite recent uh, articles or books or TV shows uh, for our listeners to, to check out. Uh, there's a lot of content out there, and we, uh, we try to highlight uh, the good pieces of content that are worth checking out uh, related to Israel, obviously. Um, I have a slightly different question for you in a second. I'm going to give my, my pick for the week, uh, and that's an article in The Atlantic uh, by Susie Linfield, Linfield rather, uh, an American author and professor. Uh, she wrote a long essay that came out this past weekend uh, in the Atlantic magazine called Palestine Isn't Ferguson. Uh, it has a lot of aspects to it, uh, but primarily she's analyzing uh, the progressive left uh, in the U.S., but not only, and how uh, it mistakenly understands and analyzes uh, Israel and Jews. Uh, and how the progressive left tries to glam on uh, its own ideological prism onto this conflict uh, half a world away in the Middle East. Uh, it's a really interesting essay. Uh, it's worth checking out. I'll just give a little, a little anecdote, an excerpt. Uh, she writes that any useful analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict requires engaging with an unresolved, frustratingly complex, grievously resilient struggle between two national movements, each with a justified claim to the land. Once that effort is abandoned, a vacuum ensues. It is filled by the transformation of a country into a metaphor, by the rewriting or ignoring of history, by Manichaean thinking, and by the conversion of language into a means of performance rather than a description of reality. Uh, strong stuff, but I think it's a good encapsulation of uh, what your work and, and the Fauda TV show tries to do, which is that uh, beyond the headlines and beyond the rhetoric, uh, both from the left and the right, pro-Israel, anti-Israel, there are real people living here uh, in the Holy Land, in Israel and Palestine, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, and that you have to engage them on their own terms. And you have to engage them uh, and understand their own political realities. Uh, so I think that essay is really in important. Uh, again, in the Atlantic by Susie Linfield, Palestine isn't Ferguson. Uh, Avi, I sprung this on you uh, without your knowledge, but don't worry, I'm not going to ask you for your recommendation. I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, Fauda, uh, international sensation, hit TV show. But I'm curious uh, whether you and Lior Raz uh, were inspired by either a movie or a TV show um, when making Fauda. So you have this idea for, for a TV show about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, and you want to make it, like you said, authentic, uh, gritty, that you can smell uh, the cigarette smoke from both sides. Uh, but did you and Leo actually have or take inspiration from something that had come before Fauda? Yes, but more about the, the artistic vision and 
the kind of uh, conception which we thought it was very interesting to show the bad guys as sometimes as the good guys or the better the villain the better the movie that's the cliche mm-hmm. script right and I think that one of the movies that really inspired us was heat heat um, heat yeah Michael like Mann, Michael 1995 Al Pacino Robert de Niro great movie exactly yes 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 and you know when you watch that movie it's it's kind of uh, confusing for the others why because you like the character of Robert de Niro that plays um, a robber mm-hmm. that kills people including innocent people and still you like him and you love him and you want him to succeed and you want him to fall in love and you want him to run away from the cops uh, and he's a bad guy just to keep in mind so I think that the minute that we understood that that's the conception that we want to have we wanted to create some kind of a confusion especially among Israeli viewers because we didn't have in mind that father will be aired outside of Israel we wanted to create some kind of uh, not an understanding but that, you know Israelis will open up their eyes will open up their ears and wonder hmm is it possible that a Palestinian terrorist might have some children and a wife that he cares for, that he loves? And I think that this is what we wanted to create and maybe manage to achieve. Uh, that's a great recommendation. Uh, maybe not Israel-related, but Heat is a fantastic movie. And, and like you said, there's a, there's a dichotomy, or uh, as Susie Linfield wrote, a, a Manichaean quality to uh, you know, an Israeli special forces agent uh, played by Leo Raz and the Palestinian terrorist uh, in this, this face-off between the two and them uh, and, yeah. and one chasing the other and trying to catch him. Uh, Avi, this has been great. Uh, before we sign off, uh, I'd like to thank Jacob Gilman, uh, who produces this podcast. And I'd also like to thank all of you who listen and support uh, Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast. You know who you are. And just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Avi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much, Eddie.